the struggle we make is against the extremes on both sides. These were the words of John Bell in a speech that he delivered while running for president in 1860 as the Constitutional Union Party's preferred candidate, as is documented in the New York Times article titled, Political Presidential Speech of Honorable John Bell at Philadelphia. The presidential election of 1860 served as one of the final major incendiary events that created sectional strife prior to the outbreak of the Civil War. Bell's words that the Constitutional Union Party was fighting against the extremes on both sides, I believe to represent a very pertinent and intriguing ideology that has managed to find spiritual successors throughout the course of American history. However, I also believe that Bell's ideology and those that have followed in his wake fundamentally serve political forces that oppose progress. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Throughout the antebellum period of American history, the sectional divide within the United States became untenable. The political allegiances of various public figures tended to be defined by where they resided from. For Bell, that was the South. As the Politics in Graphic Detail article aptly titled John Bell highlights, Bell was born in Tennessee, where he would become a state senator and eventually one of Tennessee's congressmen in the House of Representatives. Bell was ultimately loyal to the South, regardless of what his Constitutional Union presidential campaign might have some belief. As Joseph H. Parks details in the Journal of Southern History article titled John Bell and the Compromise of 1850, Bell delivered out his presidential endorsement in the presidential election of 1848 based on his Southern sympathies, opposing potential presidential hopefuls Henry Clay and John J. Crittenden on his purported declaration that he would prefer, quote, a northern man with southern feelings to a southern man with northern feelings, end quote. The obvious implication of this remark is that Bell would be more inclined to support a presidential candidate who supported the institution of slavery than one who did not. Despite his history and political capital being deeply rooted in the South, Bell did consistently demonstrate political malleability. As this John Bell article notes, Bell was initially a member of the Democratic Party. However, in the 1830s, Bell readjusted his loyalties and joined the Whig Party. Bell was appointed to be Secretary of War by United States Whig President William Henry Harrison. In 1841, Harrison died shortly into his presidential term, and his vice president, John Tyler, succeeded him as president. When Tyler, who had Democratic loyalties, refused to adopt a Whig agenda, Bell resigned from his position as Secretary of War. The Miller Center article, simply titled John Bell, 1841, specifies that Bell resigned on September 12, 1841. Ultimately, 
Bell displayed a consistent aversion to disunion, and most of his actions can best be understood through a lens of trying to promote unity at any cost. In the American Historical Review article that was written by Joshua W. Caldwell in 1899, titled John Bell of Tennessee, A Chapter of Political History, it is explained how, while Bell and United States President Andrew Jackson often found themselves at odds with each other, Bell supported Jackson's efforts during the nullification crisis. As Julie Silverbrook explains in the Bill of Rights Institute article titled The Nullification Crisis, Jackson's Vice President, John C. Calhoun, who was from South Carolina, published the South Carolina Exposition and Protest Writings, asserting that individual states could decide for themselves whether protective tariffs were constitutional or not. Jackson, however, definitively disagreed, and issued an official proclamation against the potential nullification of federal laws by state governments. When Congress passed the Tariff of 1832, and South Carolina's state government declared its intent to nullify it, Jackson declared South Carolina's actions to be unconstitutional, and told his Secretary of War, Lewis Cass, to prepare to crush South Carolina's resistance. Bell supported Jackson's efforts to prevent South Carolina from nullifying a federal law and thus maintain order throughout the United States and dissuade other states from engaging in potentially rebellious or provocative actions. According to Daniel A. Cotter's Constituting America essay titled 1860, John Bell's Understanding of the Constitution, Jackson urged, quote, Congress to pass the Force Bill in 1833, which authorized the president to use whatever force was needed to enforce the tariffs. The nullification crisis ended when South Carolina repealed the nullification ordinance it earlier had passed. Bell voted in favor of the force bill and vocally spoke out against South Carolina's nullification efforts. End quote. As Samantha P. Desai illustrates in the University of Michigan article titled Jackson, Redivivus, in Lincoln's first inaugural, quote, State sovereignty, South Carolinians believed, was all that was standing between the federal government and their beloved, peculiar institution. If Congress could meddle with their trade today, what would stop it from meddling with slavery tomorrow? As historians have come to recognize, it was this fear of a future federal attack on slavery that inspired South Carolina to resist the tariffs. End quote. At its core, the nullification crisis was really a precursor for the Civil War and disputes between the federal government and state governments over the institution of slavery. Jackson even personally admitted the relevance of the nullification crisis on the debates regarding slavery. As Desai highlights, quote, Jackson himself, in a private letter later that year, doubted that South Carolina's rebellious tendencies would abate and predicted that the next battle would be fought over slavery. End quote. Both Bell and Jackson 
understood the capacity that debates over slavery could have to divide the country, and seemingly both acted fervently in favor of the federal government during the nullification crisis in order to quell any whispers of disunion. However, both Bell and Jackson also did not ever really address the fundamental institution of slavery that was causing these incidents of dissent. Bell's opposition to Tyler can also be perceived through the lens of his devotion to national unity. According to the book, Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America by Jared Cohen, one of Tyler's numerous vetoes, quote, produced an all-out brawl on the floor of Congress, ironically between different factions of the same Whig party, end quote. Tyler's actions as president internally divided the Whig party to such an extreme degree that they resorted to physical violence within the walls of Congress. Bell clearly had enough of a conscience and a drive for unity to not support such a divisive figure as Tyler. As Parks documents, Bell supported General Zachary Taylor in the 1848 presidential election instead of Clay, at least partially because he believed that Clay was a divisive political figure, whereas he believed that under the national support that Tyler could engender, quote, the honest and patriotic of all parties could unite, end quote. Bell believed very deeply in attempting to avoid conflict at any cost and promote national unity. This sometimes led Bell to take very morally courageous actions, such as when, as Parks details, he openly opposed the costly and divisive Mexican-American War and advocated for its swift and expedient conclusion as soon as possible. As Martin H. Quick explains in the Bill of Rights Institute article titled Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas, Bell was one of only two Southern senators to vote against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, accurately believing that, quote, the tendency of this bill is to stimulate the formation of a sectional party organization, the last and most fatal evil which can befall this country except the dissolution of the Union, end quote. Bell's opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act ended up being quite noble, considering that the Kansas-Nebraska Act led to violence in the form of bleeding Kansas. However, when it came to addressing the institution of slavery, Bell was indubitably a coward. Cotter highlights how, quote, Bell and other former Whigs met in Baltimore, Maryland, forming the Constitutional Union Party. The party developed a broad platform that was intentionally silent on the question of slavery, end quote. The Politics and Graphic Detail article titled John Bell explains how the Constitutional Union Party that Bell became the figurehead of officially took no position on the very contested political and moral battleground on what was to be done about the institution of slavery. Bell was personally an enslaver who believed that the United States Constitution ensured the legality of slavery. 
However, he had also opposed the expansion of slavery in the 1850s. In Caldwell's article, one such attempt to limit the expansion of slavery by Bell is described. While serving within the United States Senate, Bell assisted Clay, who would become largely known to history for his famous compromises in Congress, in responding to questions relating to slavery in 1850. Parks highlights how, when Clay was developing the Compromise of 1850, in the midst of major disagreements regarding what was to be done about slavery's existence, or lack thereof, in territories the United States had recently acquired in the Mexican-American War, Bell suggested that Texas be divided in order to preserve the balance of states that condoned slavery and outlawed slavery. As Parks describes, quote, it had long been the practice to balance the admission of a free state with the admission of a slave state. Of course, this practice could not be continued indefinitely, but Bell reasoned that it might be used at least once more by carving a new state from Texas to balance the admission of California as a free state, end quote. Bell, while discussing the Compromise of 1850, and when running for president about a decade later, had no legitimate plan for addressing slavery. He simply sought to ignore slavery as best as he possibly could and delay and postpone any serious national reckoning regarding slavery for as long as he could. Bell reasoned that he could balance the states that condoned slavery and outlawed slavery for one last time, for the sake of preserving the Union. However, many compromisers before him, not the least of which being Clay himself, likely believed that when they negotiated similar compromises regarding slavery decades earlier, such as the Missouri Compromise, they were effectively staving off a national reckoning over slavery for one last time. Bell attempting to reach one more compromise over slavery did not save the United States from increasing divisiveness, as he may have believed, but rather further imperiled the Union. Samuel Thomas Whitaker, in the University of Louisville essay titled The Electoral Victory of John Bell and the Constitutional Union in Kentucky, 1860, argues, quote, The Constitutional Union platform, rather than deliberately two-faced, sought to take slavery out of the national discussion, which, in itself, constituted a policy outcome and plan. The Constitutional Union in Kentucky, embraced a clear message of protection of the institution of slavery, and Bell's record on slavery was conservative, pragmatic, and protectionist, end quote. The fact that Bell had no plan to address slavery was a plan in of itself. Bell sought to divert attention away from debates over slavery, thereby protecting enslavers from the potential abolition of slavery. Bell himself, as is noted by the Teva article titled Constitutional Union Ticket, was a wealthy enslaver and plantation owner. Of course, Bell was never going to outright oppose the very institution that had ensured him a life of privilege and luxury. Bell, despite his overtures about national unity, was ultimately, fundamentally, loyal to the South, after all. 
If Bell would have actually been elected president in 1860 instead of his Republican presidential rival, Abraham Lincoln, and enacted the very moderate policies that he advocated for all his life, the state of the country would still have been unlikely to improve. As Cotter analyzes, quote, It is doubtful that the election of Bell instead of Lincoln would have led to long-term peace in the United States, given the tensions that had existed in the nation for many years prior to the Civil War and leading up to the 1860 election. The intentional silence on the question of slavery by the Constitutional Union Party was not likely to be a solution to the strife and threats of secession brewing at the time. End quote. Bell claimed throughout much of his public career to be a moderate politician, fighting against the extreme political perspectives on both sides. After all, before Bell even ran for president, as is explained by Albert V. Goodpasture in the Tennessee Historical Magazine article titled John Bell's Political Revolt and His Vauxhall Garden Speech, quote, he said he was not a partisan and was disqualified by feelings and principle from being one. Party had been the radical vice of other governments, and our system and the extent of territory over which it operated was peculiarly exposed to the assault of factions, end quote. The ideals of opposing factionalism that Bell professed to be in support of seem rather noble. After all, the rampant polarization and sectionalism over the issue of what was to be done about slavery did ultimately propel the United States into the Civil War, an internal conflict that Bell actively tried to prevent. While the moderate stances that Bell approached politics with and his lack of any clear plan on what to do regarding slavery, aside from kicking the can down the road, certainly would not have alleviated the serious factionalism the nation faced had Bell actually been elected president. One may wonder whether Bell's political platform of opposing polarization through the Constitutional Union Party was really detrimental. The answer, unfortunately, is yes. While Bell professed a platform of political neutrality, his candidacy for president fundamentally served the interests of pro-slavery politicians. The Politics and Graphic Detail article, simply titled John Bell, explains how, in the presidential election of 1860, quote, The constitutional unionists did not believe they could win the election outright. Their strategy was to gain votes that might otherwise go to other, stronger candidates. If no candidate in the 1860 presidential race won the number of electoral votes necessary to win the election, the decision would go to the House of Representatives, end quote which would improve Bell's chances of success, particularly considering the influence that he wielded in Congress. This article elaborates on how, quote, seeing Lincoln as the biggest threat supporters of the Constitutional Union Party created fusion tickets. The combined the non-Republican candidates, besides Bell, these were John C. Breckinridge of the Southern Democratic Party and Stephen Douglas of the Democratic Party, into a single candidate ticket in some strategically important states. Most support for Bell came from southern states in which slavery was legal, and he carried the border states of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. Ultimately, Lincoln won the election. Although he had initially opposed secession, Bell supported the Confederacy 
after the outbreak of the Civil War, end quote. Bell's presidential candidacy was inherently designed to target Lincoln's and reduce Lincoln's likelihood of winning. Bell was not apolitical. On the contrary, he was dedicated to preserving the status quo, which benefited pro-slavery politicians and their enslaving constituents, because it meant that nothing would be done to address the abhorrent institution of slavery. If this was not clear enough, not only did the Constitutional Union Party supporters create fusion tickets so that Bell would only take votes away from Lincoln and not from John C. Breckinridge and Stephen A. Douglas, who were much more favorable to slavery, but Bell himself sided with the Confederacy upon the inception of the Civil War. The Constitutional Union parties plan to use Bell's candidacy to siphon support away from Lincoln, while ultimately not effective in preventing Lincoln from becoming president, did find some marginal success. As the Kentucky Historical Society article titled Lincoln and the 1860 Election demonstrates, many voters in Kentucky feared that Lincoln's policy against the expansion of slavery would result in disunion and instead supported Bell. With Bell winning 45% of the popular vote in Kentucky and all 12 electoral votes. This article explains how, quote, John Bell was viewed as the least radical of all the candidates. His platform contained one plank, the preservation of the Union, end quote. In some ways, Bell's candidacy was more insidious than that of a partisan. Bell was a partisan, but masqueraded his deeply held political beliefs behind an apolitical pretense. At least partisans had the courage to actually proudly stand behind what they believed. Bell siding with the Confederacy was made especially egregious by the fact that, as Caldwell illustrates, Bell's 1860 Constitutional Union Party running mate, Edward Everett, remained loyal to the Union. According to Caldwell, a Northern writer named Mr. Blaine, who I believe is referring to Republican political figure James Blaine, but Caldwell never specified, declared, quote, If Mr. Bell had taken firm ground for the Union, the secession movement would have been, to a very great extent, paralyzed in the South. End quote. Blaine went on to compare Bell's traitorous actions with the loyalty of Everett by insisting that, quote, if Mr. Bell had stood beside him with equal courage and equal determination, Tennessee would never have seceded and the rebellion would have been confined to the seven original states. A large share of the responsibility for the dangerous development of the rebellion must, therefore, be attributed to John Bell and his half-million Southern supporters of the old Whig Party. At the critical moment, they singularly failed. End quote. Everett's remarks during the Civil War, even indirectly, called out Bell, his former running mate, and his Confederate conspirators for instigating the Civil War. As Christina Sturbens documents in the Business Insider article titled, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, 
totally overshadow this guy's two-hour speech at the same event. At the Gettysburg National Cemetery, Everett placed the blame for the Civil War squarely on the Confederacy, rhetorically asking, quote, which of the two parties to the war is responsible for all this suffering, for this dreadful sacrifice of life? The lawful and constituted government of the United States? Or the ambitious men who have rebelled against it? I say, rebelled against it. End quote. For someone supposedly as apolitical and dedicated to preserving the Union as Bell, to have also played a role in the Confederacy, supporting Tennessee as it seceded from the Union, speaks to just how shallow Bell's supposedly moderate and purportedly apolitical stances truly were. Bell's loyalties rested with the South, as they always had. What makes Bell framing his positions as being moderate, so deleterious, is that, in doing so, Bell could effectively normalize really quite malicious political beliefs, such as secession, as well as the preservation of slavery. The Politics and Graphic Detail article, titled John Bell, notes that Bell even, at one point, aligned himself with a know-nothing party. A political party predicated on anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic sentiments. Bell framing his political allegiances and beliefs as being moderate was a nefarious function through which he could normalize bigotry towards anyone who was black, Catholic, and or an immigrant. It should be noted that, as Whitaker explains, in regards to the nativist know-nothing society and its political offshoot, known as the American Party, quote, Bell hesitated to embrace know-nothingism and did not formally join the society. However, in his speech in Knoxville, he called on the American Party, after the demise of the Whig organization, to become a permanent opposition to the Democrats, the know-nothings, and Americans did not become the National Union Party that conservative Whigs like Bell and Crittenden, hoped, end quote. However, Bell, despite perhaps being motivated by a passion for preserving the Union, as he tended to be throughout his political career, did still enable the Know Nothing Party. The Know Nothing Party, as noted by Whitaker, even considered nominating Bell for president in 1856. Troublingly, Bell's brand of purported moderatism did not die with his presidential aspirations. As Brenda Wineapple details in her book titled The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation, Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln as president, wanted to revive the National Union Party, prospectively consisting mostly of sympathetic Democrats as well as some conservative or moderate Republicans, to block Reconstruction, crush the radical Republicans who were advocating for civil rights in the 1866 midterm elections, and put Southerners back into Congress on Johnson's theory that they had never truly left the Union. It should be noted that the Constitutional Union Party and the National Union Party were different political parties. 
However, there were purportedly moderate political platforms that specifically opposed Lincoln's Republican agenda were quite similar. Johnson's schemes to stymie Reconstruction efforts seemingly came from a place of racism, bigotry, spite, and resentment. Nevertheless, Johnson espoused the narrative that the Republican Party had become too radical in its civil rights reforms, whereas Johnson was simply governing as a moderate in accordance with the desires of the National Union Party. This argument dissolves when one considers how even Democrats at the time, like Democratic publisher James Gordon Bennett, thought that the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which Johnson vetoed, was sensible, and how the efforts of Louisiana State Governor James Madison Wells, who was certainly no ally of civil rights advocates, to revise the Louisiana State Constitution to ensure black suffrage, were opposed by Johnson inciting an armed police riot to stop these revisions from happening. Many were not deceived by Johnson's purported stance as a moderate within the National Union Party, with all of the Republicans in Congress, according to Wineapple, with the exception of Henry Raymond, who would be speaking at the National Union Party Convention, decrying the National Union Convention as a conspiracy to destroy the Republican Party. Johnson's vehement support for the National Union Convention actually served the interests of the Democratic Party, with one Ohio Democrat actually saying that he hoped to use the National Union Convention to disrupt the Republican Party and strengthen the Democratic Party, as explained by Wineapple. Johnson supported the National Union Convention because, according to Wineapple, he felt that, quote, any plan to admit Southern representatives to Congress would quash the 14th Amendment. And since this was plainly Johnson's objective, when he asked his cabinet to endorse the National Union Convention, three cabinet members actually decided they must resign. Grabbing his hat, Postmaster General William Dennison walked out of a cabinet meeting. Interior Secretary James Harlan also left, and Attorney General James Speed said he wouldn't participate in any effort to block the 14th Amendment or damage the Republican Party, he too had to go." End quote. Johnson nefariously cloaked his racially charged campaigns to prevent the passage of the 14th Amendment under the rhetoric of moderation, plus attempting to normalize his very disturbing racism that guided many of his actions as president. The National Union Convention that Johnson was such a vehement proponent of far from being the bastion of moderation that it was marketed as, served to normalize other vile, profusely racist individuals. As detailed by Wineapple, former Confederate leader Nathan Bedford Forrest was nominated to be a vice president of the National Union Convention, a man who was notorious for authorizing the Fort Pillow massacre of many black Americans during the Civil War. Forrest, as is explained by Linda Gordon, in the book, The Second Coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, and the American political tradition, was the imperial wizard of the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. And his leadership of the KKK was so influential that his grandson became the Grand Dragon of the Georgia realm of the second iteration of the KKK. 
While Forrest kept his association with the KKK quite secretive, it is quite likely that he was already leaving the KKK by the time that he was nominated to be a vice president of the National Union Convention, since, as is documented by Gordon, the KKK was first established in 1866. From its inception, the KKK was a very abhorrent and racist organization and would engage in, as illustrated by Gordon, quote, suppressing black citizenship at the polls and in the courts and reimposing black economic subjugation through sharecropping. This clan used a veneer of secrecy to maintain the fiction that the perpetrators of racist violence were unknown. In fact, they were well known. Their lynchings rested on widespread white consent and the open collusion of law and order officials, end quote. Forrest being nominated to such a prominent position at the National Union Convention served an underhanded purpose of normalizing Forrest's racially charged war crimes at Fort Pillow and providing him with a platform at a time when he was taking command of the domestic terrorist organization that was the KKK. Through Johnson's presidency, historical analysts can glean what Bell's hypothetical presidency could have been like. While Johnson and Bell certainly had their fair share of differences, they were quite similar in presenting bigoted political beliefs as moderate or centrist. On this fundamentally flawed ideological basis, Johnson felt emboldened to advocate for abundantly racist political beliefs. The 14th Amendment remains a cornerstone of American civil rights and basic liberties to this day, and Johnson's opposition to it reflects a devastating low point. In American presidential history, Johnson's decision to advocate against the 14th Amendment is baffling on many levels and can only be truly understood within the context of Johnson's intense racism and spite. The 14th Amendment was relatively popular amongst the states in the Union that had representation in Congress, with Bennett, a Democratic publisher, according to Wineapple, even believing that Johnson had been too lenient on the Southern secessionist states and that the best way to restore the Southern states to Congress was to adopt the 14th Amendment. Johnson, nevertheless, vehemently opposed the 14th Amendment, and, despite its popularity, even among some Democrats, would present his opposition to the 14th Amendment as somehow being a politically centrist position. With this perspective in mind, it is arguably for the best that Bell was not elected president. After all, oftentimes, it is when bigoted political belief systems are shrouded by the pretense of centrism that they managed to be implemented. While Johnson and his revived National Union Party may represent one of the first spiritual successors of Bell and his Constitutional Union Party, it certainly would not be the last. Former 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang recently co-founded the Forward Party, which I believe to be the latest spiritual successor of Bell and the Constitutional Union Party. Much like Bell and the Constitutional Union Party, Yang and the Forward Party, under the banner of promoting national unity and reducing divisiveness, have taken 
startlingly few actual policy positions on any divisive political issues. The similarities between Yang's Forward Party and Bell's Constitutional Union Party are truly rather breathtaking. As Yang explains in the CNN YouTube video titled Andrew Yang Explains Why He Left the Democratic Party, quote, polarization is at record high levels in the United States. Political stress is approaching civil war levels. And the question is, how can we bring the temperature of the country down, end quote. Yang specifically even mentioning the parallels between the modern era and the Civil War further evokes the comparisons between Yang and Bell. Yang and Bell both led third parties amidst rising political polarization and fears of disunion. In the CNN YouTube video titled, Jim Acosta Grills Andrew Yang on New Political Party, CNN host Jim Acosta interrogated Yang's lack of any actual policy positions, telling him, quote, Andrew, you're going to have to have policy positions at some point. How does the forward party feel about Roe versus Wade? Should it have been overturned? End quote. Yang, in responding to Acosta's questions, raises more in return, saying, quote, well, uh, I personally uh, think that women's reproductive rights are fundamental human rights, but the forward party has a not left or right but forward stance on even the most divisive and contentious issues, end quote. Acosta pushes back against Yang, asking, quote, well, what does that mean? Don't you have to take a position on something? Don't you have to take a position on something? You can't just say, well, I, uh, you know, this is a hot button issue, so I'm not going to take a position on it. You know, you want to run the country? You're going to have to make some hard decisions, Andrew. End quote. The forward party does not really have a firm position on abortion. What makes this so difficult is that if a member of the forward party were to be elected to public office, it would be unclear by their party affiliation whether they would even be inclined to support or oppose abortions being carried out. Acosta identified the lack of any clear policy positions that the forward party has and perhaps more accurately referred to it as the, quote, fill-in-the-blank party, end quote. Yang's aversion to taking any positions on political issues of any kind is particularly disappointing, because Yang used to have more courage. I developed a Politics with Paxton episode titled The Fight Against Poverty, in which I praise Yang's universal basic income, or UBI for short policy that he ran for president on in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. However, as comedian Bill Maher notes in Andrew Yang's YouTube video titled Andrew Yang and Bill Maher Talk UBI, Third Parties, and Presidential Politics, quote, if you're going to start the third party, don't you at least have to have one major issue? And I thought you had one. The, this UBI thing, universal basic income, everybody gets free money. Whether you believe it or not, it's an idea. End quote. Marr, referencing the website for the forward party, tells Yang, quote, I read your website and it's a bunch of mush. It, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just saying. It's not like specific, it doesn't even mention this. And, and why start a third party, which is a long shot anyway, if you're not going to be bold? End quote. Yang had an innovative plan to address the harrowing levels of poverty in the United States in the form of the Universal Basic Income Program during the 2020 Democratic presidential primary election. 
However, in attempting to be as moderate and non-controversial as possible, Yang did not even include universal basic income as a priority for the forward party. In this Andrew Yang YouTube video, titled Andrew Yang and Bill Maher Talk UBI Third Parties in Presidential Politics, Yang tells Maher that, quote, I'm pro-civilization, Bill, end quote. Maher mockingly responded with, quote, pro-civilization? So you're for good things and against bad? I knew I could find the specifics in your plan if I tried it hard enough, end quote. The fact that Yang and the forward party take no legitimate political stances on divisive issues illuminates the exact same problem that was present with Bell and the Constitutional Union Party. As the Second Thought YouTube video titled How Moderates Serve the Right explains, supposed centrism is simply a disguised right-wing ideology, since the political left generally seeks to promote progress, whereas the political right generally opposes progress and seeks to either preserve the status quo or transition back to an older era. This video describes how, in regards to centrism, quote, its primary directive is resistance to change. And as a result, it's not, as they claim, neither left nor right, it's just right wing, end quote. This is exemplified through Bell and Yang's political platforms. Bell took no position on what was to be done about slavery. However, in doing so, Bell presented a moderately pro-slavery political platform. Since the existence of slavery in the United States was the status quo in 1860 when Bell ran for president, taking no stance on slavery did not mean that Bell was adopting a perfectly centrist stance on how to address slavery, somehow representing a mix of both pro-slavery and anti-slavery positions equally. On the contrary, Bell not making any commitment to address slavery thereby enabled the continuation of slavery, since the existence of slavery was part of the American status quo in 1860. Bell having a political platform with fundamentally no hardline positions and just presenting himself as, first and foremost, a moderate, serviced the political factions opposed to progress and disadvantaged those political factions trying to promote progress. Had Bell been elected president, it is almost a certainty that, considering his lack of any clear plan to address slavery when running for president, nothing would have been done to alleviate the horrors of slavery under Bell's prospective leadership. Yang and the Forward Party not making any commitment to restore protections for individuals seeking to have abortions that they were insured prior to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade does not serve both the political left and the political right. It only serves the political right, since abortions, federally being illegal, now represents the status quo, and Yang not taking any action on the issue of abortion represents him essentially safeguarding the right-wing anti-abortion agenda that has since become interwoven into the new status quo with the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Yang and the Forward Party also present the same risk that Bell and Constitutional Union Party did in taking votes away from a more mainstream presidential candidate that advocates for progress, such as Lincoln. 
in commenting on this. As documented in the CNN YouTube video titled, A Really Stupid Idea, Carville Criticizes Yang's New Political Party, Democratic strategist James Carville criticized Yang and the Forward Party by citing historical precedent for third-party candidates taking votes away from progressive-leaning candidates and ensuring the success of regressive presidential candidates. Carville cites his belief that, quote, Ralph Nader basically elected George W. Bush in 2000, Jill Stein basically elected Donald Trump in 2016, and the only possible thing this could do is bleed some moderate Republicans off of voting for whoever the Democratic nominee is. This thing is going nowhere. It's, it's vanity. It's, hey, look at me, end quote. Carville's concern is a valid one, especially since in the case of Bell and the Constitutional Union Party, Bell's candidacy was literally strategically used in order to specifically detract from Lincoln's presidential aspirations. In the CNN YouTube video titled, Jim Acosta Grills Andrew Yang on New Political Party, which was released on August 14th, 2022, after Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden overcame Republican presidential incumbent Donald Trump in 2020, but as Trump prepared to launch a 2024 presidential campaign to take back control of the presidency from Biden, Acosta tells Yang, quote, People worry about another 2016 scenario where a third-party candidate like Jill Stein or Gary Johnson costs Hillary Clinton the election. Don't you think that putting yourself out there, putting this party out there as an alternative that appeals to some moderate Republicans could potentially throw the race to Donald Trump? Put Donald Trump back in the White House? Is that what you want? End quote. It should be noted that, according to Scott Mossioni's NPR article titled, Forward Party faces uphill battle as it preps to run its first slate of candidates. Joel Searby, the managing director of the National Forward Party, has said that the Forward Party is not interested in having a candidate run from the Forward Party for president in 2024. With this in mind, it seems highly unlikely that the Forward Party will make Trump's 2024 presidential campaign more viable. Yang himself even explicitly ruled out a 2024 presidential campaign for himself in the NBC News YouTube video titled Andrew Yang on America's Need for a New Political Party at Aspen Ideas Festival, saying, quote, I'm a math guy, and the math says that if I run, I probably increase the chance of Trump winning, and that is the opposite of what I'm here to do, end quote. However, if a candidate from the forward party does run for president in a future presidential election, it does run the risk of increasing the odds of an extremely conservative and arguably authoritarian-minded politician like Trump becoming president in the future. In the NBC News YouTube video titled Andrew Yang on America's Need for a New Political Party at Aspen Ideas Festival, Yang frames the choice between Democratic and Republican candidates as oftentimes being the choice between the lesser of two evils, arguing that the moderate political platform of the forward party can provide a solution to this perceived issue. This is certainly evocative of Bell's comment that, quote, the struggle we make is against the extremes on both sides. End quote. As is documented in the New York Times article titled Political Presidential Speech of Honorable John Bell at Philadelphia, both Yang and Bell drawing on a moral equivalency between the radical political figures on both sides of the political spectrum is rather disingenuous. In Bell's era, 
the supposedly radical Republicans were generally the only political figures who had the moral courage to advocate for the abolition of the demonstratively atrocious institution of slavery. There is no moral equivalency between political figures that support slavery and those that oppose slavery. Those that oppose slavery were very clearly in the ethical right and those that supported slavery were very clearly in the ethical wrong. While there is more moral ambiguity in Yang's era than there was in Bell's era, because slavery represented such a uniquely despicable form of evil that can never be replicated, I would still argue that Yang drawing a moral equivalency between the extremes on both sides of the political spectrum is rather disingenuous. In Yang's era, the radical Republicans are often politicians that oppose the rule of law and vocalize support for efforts to overturn democracy. Two such examples come in the forms of Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, as well as Trump's former chief strategist, Stephen K. Bannon. As Will Staken highlights in the ABC News article titled, Marjorie Taylor Greene says if she ran January 6th Capitol attack, we would have won. Quote, then January 6th happens, and the next thing you know, I organized the whole thing, along with Steve Bannon here, Green said as attendees laughed. And I will tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. As cheers and clapping broke out in the audience, Green added, not to mention it would have been armed, drawing a seemingly surprised reaction from the room. End quote. As far as I am aware, there is no prominent Democratic equivalent to Green and her offhanded comments about organizing an armed rebellion against the federal government. There is a clear ethical divide between the extremes on both sides of the political spectrum, and to draw a moral equivalency between them is simply disingenuous. Perhaps the preeminent concern that Yang's forward party and its parallels to Bell and the Constitutional Union Party should raise for political analysts is what they reveal about the underlying political tensions within the United States. Bell perceived the imperative for the Constitutional Union Party amidst increasing sectional divisions over the issue of slavery that ultimately culminated to an inflection point with the Civil War. Yang co-founded the Forward Party for very similar reasons. As a matter of fact, in John Stossel's YouTube video titled Andrew Yang, The Full Interview on UBI, Defunding Police, Cancel Culture, entrepreneurship, etc., Yang voices his belief that, quote, the reality is our country is polarized and getting worse all the time in terms of the two sides seeing each other as mortal enemies or evil. And we can see this is going to result in conflict, political violence, even eventually a civil war 2.0. And I was writing this book, by the way, before January 6th. So when I realized all of this, I said, okay, how can you make the system more genuinely representative, more rationally? And to folks who are libertarians and have been for years, you know you're like completely shut out of the political process. The duopoly prevents you from having any meaningful influence in races around the country. And that's the way they like it. Even though 62% of Americans want an alternative. So when I saw all this, I said, look, I need to leave the Democratic Party and start a popular movement to change the primaries, to open primaries so that libertarians, independents, and other points of view will actually have a seat at the table." End quote. 
In these remarks, Yang essentially highlights how the fear of a potential second civil war was one of the reasons why he felt compelled to create the forward party in the first place. The Constitutional Union Party was created in the years directly preceding the Civil War in an effort to preserve the Union. The fact that Yang has created the forward party for a shockingly similar purpose should make American citizens uneasy about the level of increased polarization within the nation. In the CNN YouTube video titled, How Dangerous Talk of a Second Civil War is Different Today, CNN reporter John Avalon emphasizes the horrors of the Civil War, in which three-quarter of a million Americans died, and elaborates on how concerning it is for politicians to now be seemingly threatening the United States with a prospective Second Civil War, saying, quote, Ex-President Donald Trump retweeted warnings about a Second Civil War to inflame his base ahead of his first impeachment. Some of the rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol trying to stop the counting of electoral votes after the victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were wearing t-shirts promoting civil war, while others wielded Confederate flags. Since that insurrection attempt, there's been talk of a national divorce by the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Alabama's Mo Brooks, and North Carolina's Madison Cawthorn, end quote, violent extremist groups interested in sowing division and inciting a second civil war have emerged in recent years. As the Southern Poverty Law Center article titled, Who are the Boogaloos who were visible at the Capitol in later rallies, illustrates, quote, the term Boogaloo comes from the 1984 breakdancing movie, Electric Boogaloo. The Boogaloo movement uses the term to indicate support for a civil war to overthrow democracy. The threat of violence, and even plots of a second civil war, by these self-styled Boogaloo Boys, are very real and very concerning. As Tess Owen describes in the Vice article titled, The Boogaloo Boys Are Plotting a Bloody Comeback, We Will Go to War, which was published on March 8th, 2023, quote, The Boogaloo Boys appear to be regrouping, plotting their public comeback to coincide with what many fear could be a tense, even violent, presidential election season, end quote. One of the Boogaloo boys, Mike Dunn, according to Owen, quote, claims he's training with a group of more than 100 Boogaloos in Virginia that calls itself Sons of Liberty and threatens to go to battle if Virginia tries to pass gun safety legislation. We will go to war, said Dunn. We will fight, we will die, and we will kill, end quote. Perhaps the most pressing takeaway from the comparisons between the Constitutional Union Party and the Forward Party lay in what they communicate about American society. Both the Constitutional Union Party and the Forward Party were formed at times in American history of considerable internal strife and warnings by some of an impending civil war. The civil war erupted less than a year after the results came in from the presidential election of 1860. With political figures such as Trump and Green irresponsibly seemingly fanning the flames of a potential second civil war, and the Boogaloo Boys literally being created with the purpose of inciting a civil war, warnings of a second civil war should be heeded seriously and not be dismissed out of hand. The forward party can perhaps best be perceived as a somewhat noble but ultimately misguided attempt to reduce the increasing polarization that risks tearing the United States apart. If the Constitutional Union Party is any historical indicator, the forward party is unlikely 
to find success in reducing polarization and may function more as a representation of just how divided the United States has become more than anything else. Hopefully, a prospective second civil war can be averted. Ultimately, it was not Bell who managed to reunite the United States and overcome the major sectional divisions, but rather Lincoln, who led the United States through the Civil War in which he adopted bold and morally righteous policy platforms to eliminate the systemic injustices that had caused the Civil War in the first place, such as when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It took a politician with real solutions to the pressing problems that the nation faced for any national healing to occur. Had Bell been elected president, tensions regarding what to do about slavery would likely have only been exacerbated, probably made worse by Bell's refusal to actually address the institution of slavery. Yang and the forward party's reluctance to actually address many of the pertinent political issues that are currently dividing Americans will likely encounter a similar lack of success. After all, what is the point of a political party that is not political? I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you'll find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.